Good morning, Harvest Indy West. Good morning. You guys are awake. That's good. Hard not to be awake after that great worship. Thank you guys for the worship team. I uh, told my wife when we came into the first service that uh, this church knows how to worship. One of the signs of a healthy church is a sense of vibrant worship. And uh, Doug, thank you for your kind words. I uh, told the first service that uh, I'd like Doug to do my funeral. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think only my mother could have said it better. And uh, she's in heaven, so she can't do it. But uh, so good to be here. You know, uh, we love Indy West, not because we're from Indy. Both Nancy and I are from Indianapolis. I went to North Central High School. Nancy went to Broad Ripple High School. Doug mentioned already I went to the Indiana University. Sorry, boiler grads, but uh, sometimes you got to tell the truth. And, um, but we love this church, and we love the people here. We especially love your pastor and his wife. You have a wonderful, wonderful uh, team here, and Doug and Karen. They are not only loved by us, but they're loved in our fellowship. And uh, we're just so great to, glad that we could be here. I wanted to very quickly give you guys a real quick update um, on the fellowship. Uh, this, some of this may be new to you, to some of you. And uh, I want you to know that you're a part of a worldwide church planting movement, not because that was necessarily our intent. Our intent was to plant 10 churches in 10 years. But man plans his ways, but God directs his steps. And uh, I hope we see that more later on today in the message. But uh, let's put this timeline up. I think it is already up. We started in 2000. In 2000, the elders of Harvest Bible Chapel in Rolling Meadows said, we're going to plant, by God's grace, 10 churches in 10 years. And we didn't have a clue how to do that, but we thought, you know what, God was leading us to do that. And uh, we thought that was a pretty hairy, audacious goal. And in many ways it was. But So we got started, and uh, in 2002 it became clear to us that God had far bigger plans than our plans. And uh, so we formed a separate entity called the Harvest Bible Fellowship, of which I lead and it is the church planting arm of Harvest Bible Chapel, of which you're a part of. It is also the training arm. We're as committed to being a training organization as we are a planting organization. And it's also a resource for your churches. And uh, we want to serve you. We exist not only to plant churches and to train pastors, but to be, do everything in our power to help you bear more fruit. Jesus said, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. We bear fruit when you bear fruit. And so we're so grateful for that. In 2004, we thought, let's bring everybody together, our worldwide organization, let's bring everybody together for our first Harvest University, and all 38 of us showed up. It was a great time. And uh, how many here have been to Harvest University? Anybody here? Most Harvest University people go to the first service, Doug, but that's okay. We'll, we'll increase that number. Uh, anyway, we're having our um, whatever month we, I can't remember since, what, 13th one maybe, uh, October 23 to 26. We expect 2,000 people from all around the world coming to Chicago. We expect another 1,000 that same week in Toronto. And um, why do I mention that? Only because God's at work. God is stirring the hearts. And you get to be a part of that. And we want you to be a part of that. And we welcome and are so great, grateful for that. In 2005, we planted our first church outside of our country. Planted it in Arad, Romania. It's a, it's a great story. We have a Romanian here? Or you see this like a Romania? That's good. Keep cheering, man. That helps me. That helps me. You know what? I mean, uh, love that feedback, Doug, huh? Uh, 2006, we said, you know what? If we're bringing pastors into our training, we, into our organization, we better spend some time training and planning how to train them. And so we formed our first training center. Started with five guys. Five or six? Six. Um, we have one guy left in that class that's with Harvest. 
um, but that's okay. God has those. This year we have 40 people coming in already here. 29 from North America, 11 from uh, internationally, and uh, we're just so excited for that privilege. What a huge privilege. We, uh, we have 92 kids, I think, brought with them. So, I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a, we need some operations people to help us figure out what we're doing. Um, 2008 should be on that because you know what happened in 2008? Uh, yeah, that's right. Harvest Indy West was born. The tipping point took place, and uh, what a wonderful day. All joking aside, we were reminiscing last night. I remember meeting Larry Woods for the first time in uh, Rolling Meadows. You know, uh, there's over 80-some thousand people that attend Harvest Bible Chapel worldwide, but there's a handful of people that sense the burden of God to, to plant a church in the area, and Larry was one of that one of probably 50 or 60 men around the country and around the world that have called us and said, hey, we sense God maybe wanting to do what you're doing in Indianapolis. And uh, met Doug and Karen shortly thereafter and just so many great memories. Uh, 2012, we uh, said, let's start sending more people across. We began teaming up with our North American churches and our international churches. And uh, I know many of you here, at least in your church, have gone on some short-term trips. Uh, 2014, these are just a few high points. There's a lot more than that. We planted our first church in a Muslim nation. We're in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Church of about 225 people. You can pray for that church. Uh, desperately needed. Uh, it's an alpha city of the world, but in great need of the gospel. And uh, you can pray for Nate Newell and um, his w- wife, Marie. And, uh, and then 2015, we had our first harvest shoot outside of Chicago. We did one in Toronto. And um, so one last slide, or a couple of slides really quickly here. Um, today we have 152 churches planted. I think it says 143 in our bulletin, but it's 152. And that's, your, that's not your mistake. That was our mistake. We gave you the wrong information. Uh, we're in 18, 19 countries, five continents, eight languages. As you'll see in the next slide, um, we have um, 37 churches right now outside of North America. And it's thrilling to us. And uh, it really is. And we are, we are expecting, we're seeing many doors opening up. And we're just so grateful for that. The gospel's for all nations. In fact, if you go to the next slide, you'll see that we're in eight different language groups. Because why? Because the gospel is not just for Americans, not for Canadians. It's for people from every tongue, every tribe. And while we don't represent our harvest in every tongue and every tribe, we're now in eight different language groups. And we're so grateful for that. And then uh, we can see that uh, we're going to countries where we are definitely a minority. And uh, that's okay because uh, Acts 4.12 says so clearly there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do you believe that? That's why we're here today, right? Among other reasons. To worship the one whose only name is worthy, whose only name is the way to God. And then um, we are planting this year, by God's grace, 19 churches. We have planted, I think, 11 so far. 19 uh, of the 19, seven are going to be international, and 12 are North American. I mentioned uh, in the first service, one of the things that is very exciting to us is that this year we planted our very first uh, church in the inner city. Uh, you can pray for that church as well. It's in uh, the Austin neighborhood. You know, Chicago has the dubious... Uh, an unfortunate reputation as being the uh, the murder capital 
of the United States in terms of more murders take place in Chicago, and Austin has more murders than any other the neighborhoods. And um, yet we are thrilled to be there, and the Lord has opened doors for us. And um, anyway, so pray for that church. And then uh, just to put a wrap on this, um, I mentioned seven, we'll be planting seven international churches this year. Uh, we're excited about the fact that we've opened our first training center outside the United States. It was in Romania. I know, uh, Larry, when did you go? Were you in April? May? And uh, Larry was over there training, I think, with some other guys. Uh, we had five Romanian pastors. God willing, we hope to open a training center in Haiti this year. Uh, we are as committed to training as we are planting. We're a planting organization, but we are wanting to be uh, a, a highly skilled, and we are deeply committed to being the very best trainers we can. Uh, Harvest U, we had our first Harvest U outside the country as well. We had that in Eastern Europe, and uh, we now have 11 planters in the training center. So pray for us. We need your prayer. This is a work of God. Jesus will build his church, and he's called us to some things, but unless he builds the house, we labor in vain. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And, um, and then we thank you for your participation, and we, we want more of that. We are partnering together. The fellowship is a, a cooperative effort where together we link arms. And uh, the great power in the fellowship comes that together we can do a lot more than we could individually. And we're so grateful for your elders here and for Doug, the way you lean into the fellowship. Doug is a very valuable resource in our fellowship. He's a guy I lean on quite a bit. So let's do this. Let's, enough of that. Let's get into the message today. And let's open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. In my position, uh, I'm talking to people all the time about Harvest Bible Fellowship. And it doesn't take long to quickly get to the pillars of our church. You guys know the four pillars? It's on your program. Who wants to stand up and give them to us? Actually, we won't do that. But uh, people say, why did I sit in the front row? <laughs> but our four pillars are the anchors, the foundation of our church. And they're not our pillars. They're New Testament pillars. We build Harvest Bible chapels on the things that God blesses. God blesses a bold proclamation of his word. Isaiah 55 says, my word will not come back empty. But it will accomplish what I do. When Doug brings the word, and my hope today is not in me, it's not about the messenger, it's about the message. But when we bring the word of God and open it up, our confidence is not in our abilities. That's a scary thought. Our confidence, especially me, Doug is more gifted than I am, as you soon will find out. But my, our confidence is in that God's word is living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And we've seen over and over again, as we build churches on a bold proclamation, that it comes back with great fruit. Martin Luther said this, and I'm getting too distracted in this, but I love this pillar. Martin Luther said, the word of God's like a lion. Get it out of its cage and it will fend for itself. It's not looking for a public relation agent. God has great power in his word, and we proclaim it. Secondly, we lift high his son to worship. What a great worship team you have here. That was fantastic worship today. My heart was prepared for what I'm about to do today. I hope your heart was too. But Jesus if he's lifted high, we'll draw all men to himself. Our goal is to lift him high. We sang that, didn't we? And then thirdly, we believe, have a firm belief in the power of prayer. Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And I want to camp out today on that pillar. If you knew my life story, you would know that my family's 
uh, humanly speaking, faith coming to Christ was through people that were praying for us. And uh, when I grew up in a Christian home, I had a praying mom. Anybody here have a praying mom? I praise God for that. I've had a, my wife of 37 years, as of August 25th, has been a wonderful prayer partner and praying for me, interceding for me. And I hope my kids can say the same thing about me. But my life story is built, uh, humanly speaking, on a cousin that prayed for me every day until my wayward heart came and came back and returned to him. And the thing that is so wonderful about prayer is that, first of all, it's not our idea. It's God's idea. It's his provision. At the cross, when Jesus said it was finished, the temple curtain was rent from top to bottom. Not from bottom to up, but top to bottom. Meaning God says, you no longer are kept out of my presence because my son's righteousness bids you enter as often as you'd like as you come in his name. That's why we sang, we'll sing later on today, Jesus, in your name we pray. We come today in the name of Jesus. It's his idea. He secured it for us at the cross, and we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anybody here today need mercy? Anybody here today need grace? It's, it is accessible to us. What a gift from God. Let me open this with prayer. Father, we pray today that your word would instruct us. We pray that your word would motivate us. We pray that your word would change us. Lord, this is all about your son. It's not about me. It's not about James. It's not about Doug. It's not about any human instrument. It's about the mighty Lord Jesus and we pray today that you'd give us a, a much greater glimpse into the glory of your Son. We pray that the glory of Christ today might descend upon this church, Lord, as we open your word, as your spirit reveals him to us. Lord, I cannot do that, but you can by your spirit. We're asking you to do that. We're asking you to instruct us and teach us, Lord, in your word. We're asking, Lord, even more than that, that you would transform us. Lord, your word says that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Lord, would you do that for us today? Make us greater lovers of you and of one another. And we thank you that we can ask this in the name of Jesus and in his righteousness we pray. Amen. Okay, Acts chapter 4. Title of this message is Believing Firmly in the Power of Prayer. Subtitled could be one of two things. Could be the prayer that God answers, because that's really the theme behind it. Or you could also say it's the first corporate prayer time. I didn't use that because many of us grew up in the church, and most corporate prayer times, not in this church, but most corporate prayer times, am I allowed to use the word stale here, Doug? Are stale at times. Prayer is hard, and we, we need to learn afresh. And my goal today is to give us a fresh vision of what God wants to do through prayer and what, what uh, is the kind of prayer that God answers. But before we get to the prayer, we're going to look at three things for today. We're going to very simple. We're going to look at the problem. We're going to look at the prayer, and we're going to look at God's provision. And I, as I said, my goal is that this would instruct us today to be men and women of prayer as individuals and as a church. And uh, let me begin with this thought, and we'll quickly look at the problem, but please know that God brings problems into our life, and he does, to teach us to pray, to cause us to draw near to him. 
The psalmist says, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. The purpose for trouble today in your life is that God would revive your heart, that he would give you a greater sense of who he is, more love in your life, more joy, more power, more of him. That's God's purpose. And we see it, you're going to see it here in this time too. Because guys, there's something about prayer. It's like physical exercise. We don't do it unless we're motivated to do it. And God uses problems to motivate us. And you'll see the problem he gives. So we're going to look at, um, let me just say one last thing about that. Uh, Psalm 27, verse 8 is a verse I love. It says, uh, David is saying, when you said, seek my face, quoting this from God, my heart said, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. When you said, God, when you said to me, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. When does God tell us to seek his face? Well, one of the times is through times of problems. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. So let's look at the problem. Uh, you can keep your finger in Acts 4. Just move back a page. And we're, we're going to go through, through this pretty quickly. This is going to be a flyby at three, three or 5,000 feet because you should be familiar with the story. And if you're not, uh, I would commend you to read it today and think on it. But first of all, in Acts 3, verses 1 to 10, it says that, verse 1, that Peter and John were going to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So they're going to prayer, and they come across a man who is a beggar who has been lame from his birth. And um, Peter says, it says he fixes his gaze on it. The guy's asking for money. The old King James Version says, silver and gold have I none. But in this case, he says, I don't have any money. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. He does this unbelievable miracle. This guy, people knew this guy. If you went to the temple, you knew this guy was. He was a beggar. Now they see him. It says he was walking and leaping and praising the Lord. Remember this song that we used to sing about that? Do you want to sing that for us, Nancy? Okay, sorry. Too much caffeine, I'm sorry. Um, so, out of that, Peter preaches the second sermon, Acts 3, 11 to 25, and then he brings it. You talk about bold proclamation. I mean, read that today and read it carefully, and you just see this powerful message. It was so powerful that Acts 4, 4 says that five thousand men came to Christ that day. That's just the men. So if most of those guys were married and they had a few kids, we're talking probably 15,000 people that day, came into the church that day. That's a church bigger than the founding church in Meadows, Elgin, all ours, that we have 13,000 or 12,000. Pray for your assimilation guy if that ever happens here. <laughs> and your small groups guy. So they come. So guess what happens? The Sanhedrin, it says in uh, verse chapter 4, verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the guard and the Sadducees came up, being greatly disturbed because they're teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. So they grab Peter and John. They throw them in jail. Then they threaten them. And they say to them the next day, they say, stop doing this. Stop preaching in that name. And uh, so they're threatened. And at that point in time, Peter and John go back, report it back to the church, which will lead us in a moment to their prayer. But I don't want you to gloss over this, even though we're going quickly through this. Don't gloss over this. They were in danger, grave danger. These are the same group of people that had put the Lord Jesus to death. They knew what they were capable of doing. So this just wasn't idle threats. They had seen what this group had done to their, their Savior. 
Jesus said in John 15, and, and perhaps these words were ringing in their heart and mind, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted you, they're going to persecute me. And my friends, that's true for us today too. Our expectation shouldn't be to be, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, if we're going to be a fully exposed follower of Jesus, let the world know we belong to him. As Pastor James would say, run the flag to the top of the flagpole, then we should expect that not everyone is going to think that is great. But the point that I want to make here is that these people, these were serious issues. This was not something that they were taking lightly. The, the text doesn't indicate their concern, but we know they were concerned because they went right to prayer. The problem had accomplished its purposes. It motivated them to prayer. Now, we're going to unpack this prayer. This is where we want to spend most of our time because this prayer is so powerful. And um, I just really hope I can communicate it with the clarity that it's so wonderful to me as I was studying it. But let's look at this prayer together. And in, uh, we'll start in verse 24. And notice that they lifted their voices, it says, with one accord. They were together. The idea here is they were praying out loud. They were in agreement. This prayer was intense. It was urgent, and it was focused. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but that's, that's the kind of prayer that God does answer. But notice what it says here. It says, they say here, when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that, all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in their city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And then they said, and now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay, let's begin with this. How did they open the word? How did they open their time of prayer? They used the word Lord. And uh, as I was studying and preparing for this, it struck me that this is not a common word not the common word for Lord, but it was a word that's only used six times in the New Testament. And it was a word that means literally, you could translate it, sovereign Lord, master. The, and the idea behind it was this. When you're using this word, you're addressing someone who is a ruler of unchallenged power. Just unchallenged power. You had all the power. It was somebody who was in complete control, and it's someone who owned everything. That's the idea behind it. They began calling on the name of the Lord. Now, why do I make this point? I make this point because Proverbs 18.10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. They're running to the one who's in sovereign control. They needed to know that afresh. They were seeking to remind themselves of who God is. You are the sovereign Lord, and they are stressing that point in their prayer. They needed that kind of confidence. And I would just say that as, as we look at this, before any petition is made, as they were seeking fellowship with their father, they are reminding themselves of who God is. I just love that. And it's such a key point because the beginning for, part, 
part of prayer that God answers is a right view of him, that we address him for who he really is. The God of the scriptures is the sovereign Lord. That's who he revealed himself to be. And they have to believe that to go forward. And a right view of God leads to worship. Powerful prayer starts here because it addresses our greatest need. Your greatest need today is not the problems you brought into this room. And they may be, I'm not trying to minimize. You may, some people may be under deep trial. But your greatest need is not that. Your greatest need is you would think rightly and have a renewed mind of who God really is. That you would come to know and to understand him for who he is. Why is that important? It's important because when God is small, our problems are big. And when God is big, our problems become right-sized. Amen. God is great. The one that we belong to is not some weak, puny, impotent God. He is the sovereign one. And their greatest need, their greatest problem, wasn't the threats that came to them. Their greatest need was that they didn't want to fear man. Because they, they were trying to be intimidated to stop. And I just mentioned this again, but when left to ourselves, when left to ourselves, our problems seem big. And God seemed like, that is the default part of your heart. Your heart will always migrate to that. Because our minds need to be addressed, need to be renewed. David said this in Psalm 34. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fear. God said through the prophet Isaiah in 51, he said, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of a man who dies and the son of man who's made like grass that you have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens We'll get to that in a second. And laid the foundations of the earth. That, my friend, is the God of the New Testament. That, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is what you put your faith in. Be reminded of that today. He is the sovereign God. And if he's not, then let's just hang this up. This is true. Do we believe it? Okay, so now notice, what doesn't stop there. So it doesn't stop there. He starts... It does begin with an open declaration, but then notice he prays three verbs in this prayer. This is so great. First prayer is he says in verse 24, you made, and then he quotes uh, Exodus 20, verse 11. He says, Lord, you made the heavens and the earth. What he's saying is, sovereign Lord, you're the God of creation. And notice what he says. He says, you made the heavens. You know, one of the reasons God made the heavens, apart from perhaps his own enjoyment, was to put his glory on display and to see how majestic he is and for us to begin again to right-size our thinking. You see the pattern here? They're trying to right-size their thinking. A problem has come into their life and they're trying to right-size their thinking. Do you realize that our, the heavens, the, our, our galaxy is considered one of the smaller ones in the universe and scholars tell us that there's between 200 and 400 billion stars in our galaxy? It says in Genesis 1:16. And he made, he made the stars also. And just a little by thing. And throwing, throwing this too. He made the stars also. It says also he gave every star a name. We won't talk about that today. But, but this is who our God is. He made it. But he's not just the God of heaven. He's also the God of earth. 
And we just, uh, guy just got back from Colorado, I was in Breckenridge. You know, it doesn't take um, much to see the, the earth that we live in, even in our own country, to see the grandeur, to, to be caught up with awe, to go to the Grand Canyon, to see the Rocky Mountains, to see any number of things, to realize how even though fallen, it's beautiful, and this was created by God, something big and great. And then he's also the God of the sea, and I just love this. I mentioned earlier that in the first service that there are 352 quintillion gallons of water in the oceans. Anybody know what a quintillion is? I didn't know there was such a thing as a quintillion. Somebody better Google search that to make sure that I'm right, too. But a quintillion is one plus 18 zeros, and there's 352 times 18 zeros. 96% of all water in the planet is found in the ocean. The ocean covers 70% of the surface, and is it's home to not millions, but billions of plants and animals. For example, largest mammal, largest animal on earth is found in the ocean. Anybody know what that is? Blue whale, 175 tons. Just to put that in perspective, an elephant weighs five to eight tons. It's over 100 feet long. The blue whale produces the loudest sound on earth when they blow their whistle, whatever they do. <laughs> Now, contrast that with taking just a drop of the ocean and putting it under a microscope. You realize you'd see millions of phytoplankton just in a little drop. This is the God that we're praying to. He's the God who created heaven and earth. And he created the, um, the ocean as well. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this because we need to wrap our minds and allow God's spirit to renew us as to who is the one that we call God. Who is the one that we call God? So first it says, said, Lord, you made. Then secondly, in verse 25, he says, you said. And then he quotes the Psalms. He says, not only are you the God of creation, sovereign God, you're the God of revelation. You have revealed things to us. Isn't it interesting that this church in crisis praised the Psalms? Do you realize that that's a gift from God? The book of Psalms were given as a book of prayer for his people. There are difficulties that God's people before had gone through to see, his, and, and they, they chronicle the lament and the answer and the greatness of God, and they're praying this, but I love this. This, to me, was one of the highlights of what I said. As they're quoting the Scripture, they're quoting the Psalms, but they're quoting what Psalm? They're quoting Psalm 2. Notice what it says here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is awesome. Psalm 2 is God predicting that the leaders would turn against the Messiah. And what they're saying is, Lord, your word is true. You predicted it. You predicted it through your prophet David as he wrote these words. This is a fulfillment of your word. These people, the Sanhedrin, who think they're operating independently of you, are actually fulfilling your word. Isn't that powerful? That is so powerful to me. He's saying, Lord, and you have revealed this to us. Our lives are not out of control. This isn't just some random act. But God, you are actually fulfilling the very word you declared to us. And just puts everything in perspective. You know, history is just full of examples like this. 
Would you like me to give you one? Yeah, again, three people here, Doug. That's good. And Doug's here because he heard it the first service. So he had to hear it again. Okay, well, let me give you one. The Wall of Babylon in ancient antiquity was considered the seventh wonder of the ancient world. You could ride chariots on top of the wall. It was just a massive structure. Of all the things in antiquity, it's considered one of the seven greatest things done, made. What's interesting is that the Jerusalem wall is older and still surviving. The, the wall of China is older and still surviving. But you can't find any remnant today of the wall of Babylon. Why, you ask? I'll tell you why. The prophet Isaiah declared that the wall of Babylon would be utterly destroyed and never rebuilt and basically never found. Now, that's half the story. The other half of the story is how, did that be, how was that prophecy fulfilled? And the way that prophecy was fulfilled was that the last pagan emperor of Rome was a guy by the name of Julian the Apostate. Christianity was growing. He was from 360 to 363. Christianity was growing. He hated Christians. He persecuted. The church suffered greatly under his reign. And as he was leading his army through Persia, the enemy that they were fighting was taking refuge in the broken down walls of Babylon. So before he went to battle against this foe, he ordered his men to completely dismantle the wall of Babylon. They took it apart brick by brick, stone by stone, and just destroyed it. And the very one that had made it one of his life's purposes to destroy Christianity was actually fulfilling the very word of God. God will not be mocked. That is the God we serve. He's the God of revelation. Glory in that today. I hope this gives you what it gave me as I was preparing that. Just a bigger, more glorious view of the God that we serve. He is not a weak God. So he is the God of revelation. And then thirdly, it says, Lord, you decided. Verse 25, you did. You do. He's the God of history. History is, as Warren Wiersbe says, maybe others, it's his story. And he does according to the counsel. The Bible says he works all things after the counsel of his will. That's a wonderful truth you can rest in today. It says the king's heart's like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. That's a great promise when you're asking God to work through authority. Uh, some of you may have seen it on one of our Facebook pages, but we have two Ugandan pastors that f are flying in on Friday night to O'Hare to be a part of our training. And they got held up by customs. And they were told that in all likelihood they were going to be sent back. So here are these wonderful Ugandan pastors. They come in and their first greeting of the United States is customs saying, you're gone, even though they had visas, they had everything, they, everything was in order. Well, Kirk Van Manu, who heads up international planting, spent an hour and a half with them on the phone. And, and he called me and he said, uh, we need to pray. He said, this is not going well. And this is the very verse we prayed. Lord, we said, Lord, you declare that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. And Lord, we're not going to run to an attorney. We're not going to run to our government officials. We're going to go right to you and ask, turn the hearts of these men. Change these hearts today. Now, We'll only find out in eternity whether or not our prayer affected that. But I can tell you this, as soon as we hung up, they were released. God is a God that answers prayer, and his, he is the God of history. 
He is the one that turns the king's hearts like channels of water in his hand. The one that, the first part of this prayer, the part we're spending most of our time on, was them allowing God to change them before he changed their circumstances. And that's the beauty of prayer. Prayer fits us for the blessings that God wants to do in our life. He has to change us. And they addressed him as sovereign Lord, who is the the, uh, master, the one in complete control, the one that also is the God of creation, the God of revelation, the God of history. Now that they had a correct view of God, now that God had begun to right-size their thinking, they began to see the greatness and the glory of God, now that they realized that God was big, really big, and that the problems were small, they said, now they said, now, Lord, here are our petitions. And notice their petitions. I love that. There's three petitions here. This was not a long prayer meeting. Can I get an amen? Just kidding. Just kidding. We love engaging the Lord in prayer. Notice what he says. Now, and now, Lord, verse 29. Lord, take note of their threats and grant your servants may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant Jesus. First prayer request is this. Nothing more, nothing less. Lord, consider their threats. Take note. They didn't give God a laundry list of how to do it and what to do and can you do it now. They said, Lord, we now know, we've been reminded afresh who you are. Lord, just take note of that, would you? Lord, just make note of that. Because we know now if it's in your care, once we roll this burden onto you, Lord, we're going to continue on. But we're just bringing it to your attention. Take note. It says in 1 Peter that Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile or return was suffering. He added no threats. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. They were following the Lord's example. They were entrusting themselves to him who judges righteously. I just love that. I love that. So many times in my prayer life, I'm giving God a laundry list, not only what to do, but how to do it and when to do it. And I really like it done before Friday, if at all possible. (laughs) And uh, that's not who we pray to. We pray to one infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, infinitely strong. And he is your God, and he is your Father. Secondly, and I love this too, they pray for boldness. I just love this. They said, or take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. They said, Lord, give us boldness. We are going to speak regardless of what the Sanhedrin said. In fact, in Acts 4.20, Peter said this. He said, let's start 2019. He says, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, rather than to God, you be the judge. How's that for clarifying the obvious? For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're going to continue. Why is that? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. If your heart today is gripped with the greatness of God, if your heart today is gripped with the gospel, you won't be able to shut up. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And their hearts were so gripped with this sovereign Lord who raised his son from the dead. I just love what it says in Proverbs 8, 28, 1. It says, the righteous are as bold as the lion. Why is that? Is it something we try to muster up? Something to say, I'm going to be bold today. No, it's because the lion of Judah dwells within. Let him out. Let him out. 
God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline. And when we begin to see who God is and seek his face earnestly, he begins to cultivate within us. And my prayer for you is for you and for me and for this church, just a, 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 a spirit of boldness. You know, if you look at church history, you'll note that nothing great has ever taken place without bold steps taken. And God's calling your church to take bold steps under the leadership of your elders. I don't know what those are, but he will. And my prayer is that this church would be marked by a holy boldness. My prayer is these elders who are uh, good and godly men would be marked with a holy boldness. My prayer is that my life, that the fellowship would be marked by that. And we need God to do that. We need God to grant that to us as well. And then lastly, notice what he says. I just love this as well. Because we resonate, we want this. He says, Lord, show yourself strong, verse 30. Extend your hand to heal. And show signs and wonders take place in the name of your holy servant. They wanted God's supernatural power in their ministries and in their lives. They wanted the power of the resurrected Christ. And don't we long for that? Don't we long to see God at work in our homes, in our families, in our children, in our neighbor's life? Or we see it, that's a God at work story. Who can do that but God? We long for that. I know you do. I do as well. We long to see lives radically changed. We need God to do that. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the whole earth, that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. And I love that prayer and that promise, but it always discouraged me because I thought, Lord, can I say my heart is completely yours? I don't know. I don't know if I can say that. I want it to be. But my experience seems to be gapped different than what my desires are. But it wasn't until I realized that no man can say that except for one man, the man Christ, the God-man. He was the only man whose heart was completely him. And today, if you're a man or a woman in Christ, we can ask God to do that because we're in Christ. I just love this too. They weren't concerned about their safety they were concerned about the advancement of the kingdom of God. And just to remind you again, we can't do that on our own. The fears in our heart are too great unless God changes us. We need God's spirit to do that. We need the, the word of God and the spirit of God as we seek God in prayer to change us and to give us that same concern and burden. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. And then lastly, look at the answer. Wow, this is great. May this be true of our prayer times. Verse, and when they had prayed, that wasn't a long prayer time. I mean, they got right to it. The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak the word of God with boldness. It goes on to say uh, in 32 and following that God granted them unity. But this is the point. First of all, God shook the place. They went from being shaken to seeing God shake the world. David says in Psalm 16, I've set the Lord continually before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. 
the one he was keeping continually before him was the sovereign Lord. So God shook the place. Secondly, he filled them with the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. We need God's Spirit working. Luke eleven nine says this, uh, 9.23, it says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He's saying, God will give us, we already have the Spirit if you're born in Christ, but we're saying, may the Spirit of God have more of us. May we experience God's power. So he filled with the Spirit, then notice the church advanced with boldness. They just, they moved. God heard their prayer, and they were fruitful. And this excites me when I think of this, because what can God do with a church that prays like that? These were not superstars. These aren't people that were, they were men with feet of clay. You read the Gospels and you see that. But there were men who were transformed, and women, transformed by Christ, and they saw what God could do in and through their lives as they sought him in prayer. Let me just give you a few concluding points here. The prayer that God answers first, and we didn't touch base on this long, but it's fervent, it's earnest, it's rooted in Scripture. But this is the thing I really want to get to. The prayer that God answers first changes this prior to God changing our circumstances. God's purpose for prayer is as we get to see him for who he is, he changes us. We become different people. We become fitted for him. And the prayer that God answers is one, because of that, is one that's aligned with God's agenda. It's advancing the kingdom of God. It's seeing what his son will do. My prayer for you and my prayer for Harvest, my prayer for uh, all our churches, is that we would lay hold of all that God's given to us in Christ through prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have laid out for us one example of a prayer that changes things. And Lord, you know that in most of our experience, we fall far short of what we could be when it comes to prayer. And Lord, our desire is not that we would work harder at it, our desire is that you would do a deeper, fresher work in us. That we would see problems for what they are. Something to drive us to you. That, Lord, that we would seek you in prayer for the one who you really are. The sovereign master, the one complete control, the one who's the God of history and revelation and creation, the God that raised your son from the dead, the God that loves us and cares for us. Now, then, Lord, we would align ourselves with your purposes. Lord, my prayer is that this church would be a praying church. My prayer is that this church, Lord, would be a church through whom you can shake the world. Lord, we can't do that, but you can. Thank you that you take ordinary people like us and you do extraordinary things. So, Lord, now come and work. And we pray that this church's best, most fruitful days would be in front of her as they seek your face earnestly. Lord, we love you and thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen.